Lee Strobel is a famous uh, Christian apologist who wrote the book, The Case for Christ. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. But you know, before he was Lee Strobel, the Christian apologist, he was Lee Strobel, the atheist, and legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. Now those are two very different identities. So what caused such a drastic change in Strobel's identity? Well, it was a subtle but unmistakable change in his wife and her identity. Let me read from, uh, from this book of, of how Lee Strobel decided to uh, go start on that path from atheist to Christian apologist. It says, Leslie, that's his wife, stunned me in the autumn of 1979 by announcing that she had become a Christian. I rolled my eyes and braced for the worst, feeling like the victim of a bait-and-switch scam. I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared she was going to turn into some sort of sexually repressed prude who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. Instead, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated, by the fundamental changes in her character, her integrity, and her personal confidence. Eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle but significant shifts in my wife's attitudes, so I launched an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity. So, Lee Strobel's and his wife's conversion, I think they illustrate that when we have a new identity in Christ, then of course it's going to affect the most fundamental relationships in our, in our life, which starts with our family, our households. And the book of Ephesians really talks about who we are in Christ. And the first three chapters, and I know I keep saying this every Sunday, where Ephesians, our, our last sermon in Ephesians is next week. Um, but now that we're in chapters four through six, if we can't forget the first three chapters that talk about how through Christ we've been given a new identity. We've gone from being enemies of God and children of disobedience to being uh, citizens of God's kingdom, uh, members of God's family, and parts of the temple of God's presence. And in these final three chapters, Paul starts explaining, well, what does that look like? It's going to affect all of your relationships. And then he goes into some details of, of why and how. But we can't forget those th first three chapters because otherwise all of what I'm talking about is going to seem like, oh, you should do this, you should do that. And we can't do it in our own power. No, we need to have a new identity in infused with the power of God's Spirit in order to do any of those things that the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6, and what he says to do here. But now, Paul just explained how our new identity in Christ is going to cause us not to relate to our culture, our overall culture the same way. The course of this world and the things that the world does, we're not necessarily going to do because we have a different identity in Christ. 
So we're going to be putting off a lot of those things of our old self that were part of our culture and putting on the likeness of Christ. This new identity causes us to, again, relate differently. But as we seek to be filled with God's spirit, we won't walk according to the world's values, according to the world's ethics. But instead, we're going to follow God and seek to reflect Christ. But this includes not always trying to get our own way. Because that's really the, the way of the world, right? It's, all right, me first. But instead, we submit to one another in reverence for Christ. That was verse 21, okay? The last part of our scripture last week that we covered it ended with this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We submit our own agenda, our own goods, and, and, um, and being on top to Again, submitting to one another out of fear, of, uh, out of reverence for Christ, wanting what's best for one another. And now in today's passage, as we move to Ephesians 5.22, Paul moves into, all right, what does this actually look like? What does this mutual submission actually look like in the primary sphere of our relationships, the household? What's it going to look like for us to live out our new identity in the closest of relationships, in our marriages, and in our families, and in our households. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about today. And I think it's so, you might be thinking, oh, you know, Pastor, I was hoping you'd talk about the election or something. Well, no, I'm kind of tired of it. But also, the, the fact is that, you know, when it comes to making a difference, changing our world, it's a lot easier to vote for a person, put a little sticker on yourself and virtue signal than it is to be Christ-like in our day-to-day -day relationships. Now, outside, we put the sign up, God has elected you, right, to bless your community. Well, the same is true. God has elected you. He's put you in your family, uh, married you to your spouse to bless them. That's where you're really going to make the difference, the concrete difference in your life and world. It's through the day-to-day -day submitting to one another and seeking what is best for others. And so Paul illustrates this mutual submission in the three most common relationships in the ancient household, in the marriage relationship, in the parent and children relationship, and between slaves and their masters. Now, I know that last one doesn't really have close correspondence to our culture, but Paul covers it because many of the households in that ancient day, that was a part of it. So when Paul's going to talk about what does it look like to live your new identity in your household, he covers that. And so we're going to cover that too, Even, but we'll have to make some adjustments for application. So let's go to Ephesians 5.22. Paul's talking to uh, marriage, married people first. He says... Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I actually looked at this passage back on uh, Father's Day, but I stopped worrying about those things because I know you don't really remember some, most of my sermons. Just a, a little piece, and that's good. If you can only just take one piece, that's a win. Um, but because we're going through Ephesians, we're going to cover this again. But Paul's main concern here, and again, it makes sense in the context, is that Christian households would reflect Christ. And marriages would reflect Christ. And Paul has been emphasizing that living out your identity is really about reflecting Jesus. So, of course, you're going to reflect Jesus in your closest relationships. And in this passage, the primary command, okay, grammatically, the primary command to reflect Christ comes to the husbands, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this doesn't mean wives are not supposed to reflect Christ. No, of course you are to do that as well. But here, Paul is focusing down upon the different roles in the marriage relationship and how that relationship, it's not just for you and your wife or your, you and your, and your husband. You, it it's pictures something bigger than the two of you. It actually pictures the relationship between Christ and his church. And, and husbands, the the role that goes to you is to reflect Christ in that relationship. Christ is the head of the church. He established the church through self-sacrificial servant leadership to make the church all that she was meant to be. He put aside his rights, his prerogatives, to ensure that his bride would be set apart for God and blameless to the point of giving his own life on her behalf. So that's what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So husbands, if you pull out that headship card, oh, husbands are the head of the family, you better be ready to reflect Christ in your leading. Because Christ gave his life for his church. And that's, and that's how we're called to love our wife as Christ loved the church. And as husbands reflect Christ's self-sacrificial love, wives are supposed to submit to their husband's leadership as the head of the household. And in this way, the marriage relationship actually images something greater than itself. It images Christ and the church. And that makes sense because our identity is changed to the point we're supposed to reflect Christ and we're supposed to be a part of his body. That's part of our identity. And in the marriage relationship, in the household, in a, is a microcosm. It's a picture of that relationship, both aspects, both Christ and the church. And Christ is building his redemptive kingdom through his body, the church. And marriage reflects that on a smaller scale. And so if we have a new identity as children of God, then of course that is going to affect our closest relationships. So husbands and wives, we're not to reflect the, the power structures or patterns of the prevailing, prevailing culture. We're supposed to reflect Christ. And in Christ, we see both his selflessness in leading, but I also want to point out, we, we also see Christ 
submission following the Heavenly Father. That word submission, it's a, it's a dirty word in our culture, but it also reflects Christ's qualities as well. Now, in this picture, that submission is connected to the church, but I just want to point out that when we look at Jesus Christ, we see that within him, he also submitted to the will of the Father. So John 5, 19, Jesus was talking to his disciples. He says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So if you think submission is somehow a dirty word, no, Christ submitted to the will of his Father. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ made himself nothing. He took on flesh. He took on the form of a servant. So to reflect Christ, it not only requires imaging his selfless um, leadership, it also means imaging his humility. And, and both in the church, his body, and in the family, every person's going to have seasons of exhibiting both. Exhibiting both godly leadership and uh, humble submission. Now, now, Paul is focusing down upon the marriage relationship in those different roles. But husbands don't think that this means, oh, I'll, I'll never have to submit because godly, Christ-like leadership involves humility as well. But make no mistake, if you have a new identity in Christ, it will call you to selfless leadership as well as selfless submission. It means instead of self-interest, Paul says, no, love your wife like your own body. Seek to build her up and her well-being. And see, this, the, the, one of the themes we're going to see throughout these, this relationship, these household relationship, is that in the world, people use their positions for personal, um, personal gain, for personal service. But in Christ, we seek our position, whatever that position is, whatever role we play, for the benefit of the other person. That's the difference. That's why when we read this scripture, oftentimes people recoil from it. Because why? They automatically put it into a worldly scheme of thinking. And in a worldly scheme of thinking, yeah, you don't want to submit to anybody because they're going to use their position to get the best of you. And unfortunately, there have been countless husbands, so-called Christian husbands, who've used their position to use their wife instead of bless and create they're uh, a family of blessing. No, they've used that position. And that's the same with, with, with CEOs and all sorts of things. But that's not Christ. Our new identity and our relationship in Christ, it's supposed to affect our relationship to our spouse. And again, I know this is countercultural. Some might label it chauvinistic. But let me just de describe. So many times we get caught up in the theory. Let, let me give you an example of what this looks like when it's lived out. I'll give you an example. All right, it looks like me putting dishes in the sink and walking away. And then the spirit whispering, love your wife like Christ loves the church. In other words, don't just expect Wendy to do the dishes because, hey, I'm busy. No, serve your wife like Christ served the church. And I know Wendy's thinking, wow, I hope he heard, I wish, he's, I wish he could hear from the Spirit a little more than he's hearing. 
And, I, and I'm not saying, I'm not tooting my own horn, because really it sh I should hear from the Spirit more. This should be more of a daily occurrence than like a weekly occurrence or whatever. But that's what it looks like. It's not like, hey, I'm the head of the household, so, you know, she can do those dishes. No, it's, it's saying, wait a minute, how in this instance, how in this interaction can I reflect Christ? And it means, do you love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself, his prerogatives, his rights up for his beloved? That's what you need to look like if you're a husband. And also, this is how it looks like in reality, is that when I was called to ministry in North Carolina, you know, Wendy and I talked, and we weren't so sure what we were going to do, but, but Wendy said, you know, Joe, I, I trust your judgment in this. Right? You're, you're, the, you're the head of the household, so... so yeah, I'm going to do what you think. But this is what it also looks like. It also looks like me talking to Wendy a few months ago, saying, Wendy, I'm not so, you know, should we stay at Second Baptist Church? And Wendy's saying, yes, I think we should. So whether you're glad I'm here or not so glad, you can blame Wendy. <laughs> because she was the, no, but, but, but see, that's what it looks like. It's not like I'm just going to do whatever I think. It's a, a true, um, partnership where, where, yeah, it's not just going your own way, it's, that's what it looks like. And so, yeah, we could theoretically uh, talk about it, but really what this looks like in a marriage relationship is the bargaining the, the, of the world, the, of give a little to get a little, of most marriages, it gives way to a selflessness, whether it's selflessness in leading or selflessness in humility, it's really seeking to glorify Christ and reflect him in that relationship. And so not asking the question, all right, what's best for me? It's how do I build up the spouse that God has put in my life? And so many relationships, and this is why this is so important, many relationships, you can manage your identity. What I mean by that is, you know, like we, we know, I know most of you or all of you in, in some way, Right? And you know other church members and partially or whatever. You can manage your how people perceive you in those kind of relationships. But in your house, in the household, you can't fake it. You can't fake it. You can for a little while. But you cannot fake it long term. The real you comes out. And so who are you? That's the question that Ephesians keeps asking us. Who are you? So if you're in church and you're acting as if you're, you know, religious guy and you're treating your wife as if she's supposed to serve you and you're not supposed to serve her like Christ served the church, then maybe you need a new identity. And that identity is found in Christ. So the first thing you need to do is look at those first three chapters of Ephesians that calls us to that new identity. Because any of this I'm saying... It's not going to make sense. You won't be able to do it in your own power. I cannot love Wendy like Christ loves the church in my own power. I don't have that kind of love in me, but Christ does. That's why the first three chapters of Ephesians is so crucial, because when we step into Christ, he gives us a new identity, and that identity is to reflect him. But if it's just about trying harder, again, you might be able to fake that. You might be able to try harder for a couple of years, but when that seven-year wall of marriage comes in, that's when you need to live beyond yourself. That's when you need a power 
beyond yourself. That's when you need an identity that's not just yourself, but Christ. So who are you? But you know, husbands and wives also have a relationship with their children. And this next section lays out a new identity in Christ that affects also the parent-child relationship. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, so notice we didn't have a children's message. The children's message is, children, obey your parents in the Lord. <laughs> but, you know, unlike the typical power relationships of the world, where some children rebel and some parents abuse their position or use their children like resources, that's not the way of a Christian household. If that child is in Christ, then he or she is able to obey their parents and honor their parents because it's not a battle of wills, but rather a goal of seeing the will of the Lord play out in loving relationships, whatever they might be. Now, it was unusual for an ancient writer to address children directly, but Paul here understands that children can accept the gospel just like adults, and that, in fact, children also often accept the gospel easier than adults. And one way they can reflect Christ is honoring their parents as Christ both honored his, his heavenly father, but also honored his earthly uh, parents as well. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it talks about the 12-year-old the Jesus. And it said that Christ was in submission to his human parents. I mean, think about that. So Mary and, and Joseph, right, they're, they're sinful human beings, and they have Jesus Christ, right? They're raising him, and yet Christ was in submission to his parents. Now this also means that parents, it says fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. It means parents should care about their children and not just establishing their way or their authority. So it says, don't provoke your children to wrath. It means, parents, as you seek to bless your children, that's what you're doing. You're seeking to bless and build your children up in the Lord. So many times we parents, we, we're, we care more about people's perception of us as parents instead of being a parent. Instead of loving our children, instead of seeking to build them up in the Lord, we're so worried what other people think about our parenting that we'll make decisions based on our, how people perceive us, instead of are we truly trying to raise our children up. That's provoking your children to wrath, where you're doing things and they understand that, oh, you're not doing this for my benefit, you're just doing this for you. But again, overarching, the, the, the whole theory, the whole, the whole theme of this how do we live life in our households? It really is about seeking to build one another up in Christ. And that includes being a parent, includes being a child. We have a new identity in Christ. And yes, you can have a new identity in Christ as a child or as a parent, but make no mistake that that new identity should affect how we relate to our parents. 
to our children. Those most closest relationships. Again, those you can't, you can't fake those. And so maybe you see, just as I have mentioned in the marriage relationship, you, you see these things inside you kind of welling out or whatever. And you know, wait, that's not who I am. Or maybe as a parent, that's what, where it happens. And maybe it's because you were hurt and you were harmed when you were a child. That's when you see things coming out of you that you know aren't Christ-like. That is God's invitation to you, whether it's as a parent or as a spouse or as a child, to say, there's something here that needs to be addressed because I want to make you more like Jesus. And so if you're lashing out at your children or a, a, a child is, you're having trouble honoring your parents, that's God's way of saying, all right, this is an issue, but if you truly are my child, then I want to help you grow through that. And so if you're here and you're, you're hearing, oh, and you're thinking about all the things that you're not, if you have received Jesus as your Savior and that new identity as a child of God, then it's good for you to recognize, wait, this isn't Christ-like. But that realization isn't meant for you to give up and say, oh, I guess, whatever. No, it's to say, no, wait a minute. I, I have put my trust in Jesus, so therefore I trust Jesus to help me through the power of the Spirit work through this issue and become more like him in this area. So again, if you're provoking your children to wrath and you know, really messing with them, and often this really exhibits itself when kids become teenagers, and uh, you know, they just do things to tick you off because they want to see if they can tick you off and push your buttons, is that, all right, I'm the parent, so I'm not going to respond in kind. I'm not going to push their button because they pushed my button. No, I want to see them grow up you know, in faith. Now, as I say all these things, please don't understand like, oh, as if I've got them all figured out. No, I have a huge long line, long list of ways that I messed up as a parent, as I messed up as a husband. But the point is, is that when I see these ways I've messed up, I say, wait, that's not my identity. My identity is not as a husband, just like the rest of the world is a husband. My identity is not as a parent who provokes his children to wrath. My identity is in Christ. And therefore, I want to step into that identity. Now this dynamic, the same dynamic of wanting, uh, not just seeking to get your own, but seeking the good of the other person, it also holds in that last section where the Apostle Paul talks about the master-servant relationship. And again, that was common in the ancient households. And where Paul is writing to the Ephesians, if the historians are correct, most of the, uh, I don't want to say most, but a good portion of the church were slaves themselves. All right, because it, it talks about Christianity. Some of the Roman writers, when they talked about Christians, it's like, ah, it's made up of women and slaves. Like, that's what they would talk about Christian churches. Women and slaves. Well, the Apostle Paul, because he understands there's a lot of folks in, in the households and whatever, he, he's going to give them guidance, too. And we're going to have to do some um, thinking to see how does that apply to today. Uh, so, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is um, both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So again, it's amazing here that the Apostle Paul appeals to both slaves and masters in the same paragraph. Um, and we have to, and, and so some might say, hey, you know, these passages in the scripture, I'm just going to go off a little tangent for a second. You know, why doesn't Paul say, slave, you know, get rid of all slavery? Why doesn't he address that uh, more directly? And I think is that we have to understand that Paul's purpose in writing, it's not to overturn society or, or whatever, but call Christians to be different, right, within a dark and sinful world. It's not, all right, you need to be like Christ when all the situation is perfect and when you live in an ideal world, then you can image Christ. Well, no, because Christ didn't Im image himself that way. Christ came to an unjust and sinful world and he gave his life. He, he, he submitted to, to Governor Pontius Pilate right? because he was the leader of that, of that time, even though he had authority over him. So the Apostle Paul's... Um, his, uh, his goal is not to overturn you know, things in society. But what we also need to recognize is that uh, you know, chattel race-based slavery of, you know, that existed in the United States, that's not what he's talking about. A lot of people voluntarily entered into servitude because their family was starving, and there was, it was kind of like what we would call indentured servants, where you'd say, all right, I will serve you for seven years if I can live in your house and you can keep me from starving. Um, and so the Apostle Paul, um, he, he doesn't overturn the, um, the institution, but rather he sets in place precepts that would eventually overturn uh, slavery. And one of those precepts was that people's identity is in Christ, and it's more important their identity as slaves or free. And so in Galatians, he talks about in Christ there is no slave or free, man or woman or anything like that, and there's no rich or poor. And so yeah, Paul doesn't overturn slavery, but his concepts were so radical in that day, and that he says, yeah, your identity as a, as a rich person, as a, as a master, no, it's the there's no difference between your identity in Christ than that slave's identity in Christ. You're equal before him. And then those things ended up overturning uh, slavery. So it's hard to find something comparable today if we think, all right, well, slavery doesn't exist today. That kind of servitude doesn't exist today. I think the one area where it does kind of fit is um, if you serve in the military, right? This would be kind of a, a comparison where you have to do what you're told, right? So that you can't just say, all right, what's a, what's a good comparison? You know, bosses, you know, employers and employees. And I think that does match a little bit. But basically, if your boss gives you too much flack, you can just quit, right? Um, and so a, a more comparable thing would be as if you serve in the military. It's all right, if you serve in the military, all right, don't just follow your um, commanding officer to, you know, as a people pleaser, but really follow them from the heart. Um, but I do think that we could still look at it and say, all right, these kind of concepts do apply in uh, your job. 
that, yeah, we don't live with our boss and you know we can just quit and stuff, but still, if someone has sort of authority over your paycheck, right, you seek to uh, reflect Christ in that relationship. And if you do, and if you're a boss, right, if you have employees, it says here, um, you know, realize that your master is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. So God doesn't care that you're rich. God doesn't care that you own your company. God doesn't care that you're the boss. He's your boss. So treat people the way that you want to be treated. Reflect Christ in this relationship so that even in these daily relationships, we seek to reflect Christ. Okay, we don't just seek to, to, to get our own. We don't just seek our own advancement. We seek to build one another up. And so as we look at this, these household passages, again, the Apostle Paul is concerned with saying, all right, you can't fake your identity in the most intimate relationships in your house. You can't fake it. That people who live with you, whether it's your spouse, your children, or your household servants, they know you. And so maybe as you're watching this or you're here Maybe ask your spouse, maybe ask your kids, maybe ask your, your employees if you're a boss or whatever. Say, how, how do I reflect Christ in our relationship? And hear what they say. And hopefully what they say is, well, you do good in this and not in this, because we're all in process. But the point is, is that if we have a new identity in Christ, it's going to call you to both selfless leadership and selfless submission as you reflect Christ in your relationship. God sees into your home. God sees into your home. He sees how you treat your wife, your husband, your kids. He sees how you, he, you treat your employees. Do you want to confess anything to him in this time? Do you want to say in... If you've never done this, then your heart's probably not open, because I know I've done it so many times, and we all need to. God, how can I reflect Christ in my marriage more? God, how can I reflect you in my parenting more? Or if he brings a certain episode into your life, confess that and say, God, this isn't who I am. I trust who I am and through you. What's God saying to you now? Just like, you know, the Strobels, they had a real identity-changing relationship and it affected their marriage. So too will an identity-changing encounter with Christ affect your closest relationships. Let's pray. Dear God, we humbly come before you and confess our weaknesses. We confess how we do not often reflect you in our closest relationships. So show us, Lord, how we can do that. Lord, it's not about a concept. Lord, it's about our identity. Amen. Show us, Lord, how we can walk in you through this. Lord, there are some here who want to make a confession about their parenting. There's some who want to make a confession about their, their marriage or, or their their work environment. But Lord, we thank you that we can come to you and as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to 
um, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and cause us to walk in that new identity. Thank you, Lord, for what you do. May we reflect you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.